Thanks for joining us again at the Canadian Breakpoint, a Canadian infectious diseases podcast by Canadian infectious diseases physicians. I'm Summer Stewart, here with Dr. Rapina Pierwal, Pediatric Infectious Diseases Specialist from Saskatoon. In this episode, we welcome Dr. Mali Brindamore, Pediatrician with the Saskatchewan TB Prevention and Control Program, to review complicated TB cases. Dr. Pierwal. All right. Welcome to another episode of our podcast at the Canadian Breakpoint. Today, we have a very special guest and actually a close friend of mine, uh, Dr. Brindamore, who will be talking about complicated tuberculosis cases. So just an introduction, Dr. Mally Brindamore is a general pediatrician with a special interest in global health. She works as a tuberculosis consultant with the Saskatchewan Tuberculosis Prevention and Control Program, where she supports TB care for children and adults in several areas of the province. She co-founded Saskatoon's Refugee Engagement and Community Health, which is known as REACH Clinic, where she cares for refugee children with complex needs. She also provides outreach pediatric clinic care to the northern Saskatchewan communities of Isla Cross, Laloche, and Stony Rapids. So welcome, Dr. Brindamore. Hello, thank you so much for inviting me. Such an honor to be here. <laughs> no, it's an honor for us because we have somebody who's an expert in TV and a lot of provinces are seeing complicated cases. And so we've had a lot of requests to kind of talk about management. How do we manage these patients? And hearing it from an expert is, uh, is a pleasure for us. And actually, it's a great follow-up episode because we just had Dr. Duello on who actually helped um, edit some of the Canadian TB guidelines that were uh, updated in March 2022. So a lot of our listeners had a chance to review these updates. And so this is a great follow-up episode. So we're super excited to have you on board. Well, thank you. And that was a great episode. I listened to it. And um, it's a hard act to follow. <laughs> All right. So I think in terms of um, compared to our different our, our podcast episodes previously, this will be a bit of a different um, approach. So we'll be talking about a few cases, complicated cases, where we'll walk through the overview and the details of the case, approach to managing, um, how did the patient overall do, and really for us clinicians and other healthcare providers, how would we have like managed this differently, and what resources do we have? Um, and keeping in mind that the cases that you're seeing are in Saskatchewan, but definitely um, applicable to the rest of Canada and pretty much North America. Um, so we have listeners from across the globe. And so we're kind of excited to hear um, some of these cases. And I would like to give a disclaimer that this uh, podcast is for informational purposes only, and it does not replace an infectious disease or a TB expert consult. All right, so with further ado, why don't we start and I'll hand over the microphone to you, Dr. Brindamore. Thank you so much. Uh, so I have three cases to talk about. Uh, and the way I chose them is I chose cases that were either um, complex in terms of management or um, complex in terms of challenging uh, or challenges in accessing care or atypical presentations. Um, and then we can unpack them and go through them. Okay. And I, I also wanted to illustrate what kind of outcome we're trying to prevent when we care for these kids and why uh, tuberculosis in kids is such um, urgent to look after, important to think about, uh, and re be really persistent in finding the cases and following up. So the first case um, is really a tragic story. Uh, but what I wanted to outline was, again, what we were trying to prevent when we deal with pediatric TB. And so that's why I chose to talk about this case first um, to, to illustrate, you know, how, how severe and, and, and horrible these cases can be. Uh, and almost 100% of the time, preventable. Right. So uh, the details have been changed. I, I changed the name of the communities and the name of the patients, et cetera, uh, change a few details of their history so, so that they're not recognizable. But this case is about uh, four-month-old Victor and his sister, Carla. 
Uh, and Victor presented to a peripheral emergency department, so not in a big city, uh, but not in a small town either, with a two-week history of cough, wheeze, and intermittent um, subjective fevers, as we say in, in PEDS, so tactile fevers. He was seen by the eMERGE doc who did a chest x-ray because he thought, you know, this is a little bit prolonged and odd and he's little. And so that chest x-ray um, shows diffuse patchy consolidation, worse than a ripe upper lobe. And then this huge lesion that's described as a mass-like lesion needing follow-up, most likely due to infection, suggesting repeated chest x-ray in a few weeks or CT, et cetera. So they consult PEDS, he's admitted, uh, on the ward, in the general pediatric ward for pneumonia, he started on IV antibiotics. And truthfully, this baby was on room air. He was systemically super well. He didn't really have any work of breathing. He didn't really have any findings on physical exam uh, other than minimal intermittent wheeze. And so there was no rush to, or any acuity to that. And so they do a CT scan the next day. And that mm -hmm. CT shows large necrotic, peritracheal, metastinal, and right hyalur adenopathies that are obstructing the right main stem bronchus. And he mm -hmm. has extensive consolidation in the right, right upper and right middle lobes. And the, the, the report says, you know, most likely malignancy, query TB. And so after that CT result, which is often what we see in cases of, of TB is like, well, I can't rule out infection, but truthfully, most, most likely a malignancy. But a pediatrician looks at that, goes back to the family and asks a few more questions. And what they find out is that the parents are asking, do you think this could be due to the illness that his older sister had? And the older sister died mm -hmm two weeks ago uh, from an unknown cause. Oh, she no. just was found unresponsive at home uh, and brought to the hospital where she died in the hospital before kind of anything was done other than a chest x-ray and a CT. And that chest x-ray and that CT showed extensive cavitations and tree and bud opacities. Uh, and there were some thoughts that perhaps her pulmonary artery was eroded and that led to a subsequent hemorrhage and that's how she died. There was no samples that were taken wow. and the family wasn't really kind of provided any explanation. Uh, and so finding this out, the pediatrician in the periphery is very worried, uh, calls the TB program in Saskatoon and say, have you heard about this baby? Like, is he on your radar? Have you treated this family or this sister before? And then of course, we've never heard about them. We've never heard about the sister. We've never heard about the baby. Mm, okay. uh, but that story was so concerning that further investigations on Victor were done. And so, of course, uh, not of course, this is actually atypical, but we found bacteriological confirmation for, for Victor. So they did gastric washings mm. uh, and the gene expert for TB was positive and the culture was positive subsequently. He also had mm. a thyroid that was positive and a mantu that was positive. Um, and it's rare that we get all of that, you know, it's rare that we get, uh, bacteriological confirmation, even the IGRA and the MENTU often are negative and right. so if we don't have the, the, the epi link, it's often very difficult to make the diagnosis. Of course. So we were lucky on that case. Uh, so he was uh, started on, on regular, uh, pulmonary, uh, TB treatment with the ripe reg regimen. And then he did quite well. He was followed by the TB program, had full recovery, and his chest X-ray post-treatment uh, looked completely normal. And he's mm -hmm. done, been done his treatment for a few months, and he's done really well. But then the question is, where did he catch this? Where is this, this TB coming from? So of course the sister's case was suspicious, but we were never able to obtain samples. We tried to do postmortem, but that that wasn't successful. Okay. So the TB nurses initiated. Um, a source trace investigation for the baby. And they also did at the same time contact tracing investigation for his sister that they considered as a infectious active, but that wasn't completely confirmed. And so through these investigations, uh, they found a link to the kid's grandma that they were visiting often. And this grandma had family ties with several communities up north. And uh, what she was doing is that she was uh, supporting 
several people who had challenges with housing in her community, uh, including one specific person who appeared to have been coughing for a very long time that she nice. identified as part of the, the contact tracing. Okay. And this individual had no phone, no address, was very hard to find. Um, and the TB nurses really persisted for several weeks. They sent letters to several family members in different communities, uh, to his uncle, his grandma, his siblings. They phoned everybody that who had a phone um, and were, were really persistent, but was, they were never able to find him. Right. But eventually, some weeks pass, and then uh, this person shows up at the TB program office because he got all of the letters, kept them. Wow. And then when he started coughing up blood, he said, maybe I have TB. I'm going to go to the address that's on those letters and showed up. And through him, who of course he had TB, yeah. uh, they were able to do the complete genogram that linked this person and these two kids to an area of the province where the, an outbreak was eventually called a few weeks after. Mm. And so yeah. everything kind of fell together uh, and made sense, but it took several weeks of detective work for the TB nurses to, uh, to find that. Uh, and in the end, so this guy is also on treatment, doing well and recovered. Right. Yeah, so quite challenging in terms of like, I think like, I mean, one of the challenges that I would face in that case is to never, ident like difficulty identifying the index case, right? Exactly. And like contact tracing, especially when, you know, you don't, especially in a province like Saskatchewan, where sometimes the address that we have provided for some of the patients isn't, you know, their permanent address. And so there's a lot of moving around. And I'm sure like similar in Manitoba, they must be experiencing that as well. So that is quite challenging for sure. And so, it's so really, yeah, tedious detective work. Yeah, uh, definitely. And, and, but it's really the contact tracing and the source investigations that will make everything make sense. Right. So I often look at these mapping uh, and the genograms and the family trees and it, it comports us in our diagnoses, especially in pediatrics, where it's so rare to get good bacteriological confirmation. When right. the links and the epilinks make sense, um, it makes me feel better about not treating them for nothing or over-treating right. uh, people when really the link is there. But sometimes it takes a long time to, to find it. Yeah, no, that's fair. Yeah. So how would you, is there like, I guess locally in Saskatchewan, public health would be able to kind of help clinicians if they were in a, in a situation like that, where they need to get some help with contact tracing, or is it mainly like TB control? It's, uh, it depends, it varies bit province by province. I know that in some provinces, it's public health that does that. Uh, in Saskatchewan, it's the, the TB uh, program specifically that has um, TB nurse clinicians that are looking after this contact tracing, but there's lots of partnership going on, right? We do talk to public health, we talk to uh, community health nurses in different communities, um, and, and it takes a lot of discussion with lots of people to, to, to help with that, but that would be, in Saskatchewan particularly, the TB program that would be responsible for that. Okay. All right. Yeah. And then another thing to add about this, the importance of the genogram and the importance of the contact tracing is that through that, um, it's obvious to say for people doing this work every day, but yeah, that's how you identify high risk contacts and prevent these bad outcomes from occurring in more babies. And so, for example, through this contact uh, trace investigations, we were able to identify several active adults who were in contact with several other kids and dozens of, of, of kids needed to be probed as a result. Mm. And we had um, at least you know, five or six that I can think of active cases that were unearthed as, as a, as a yeah. this contact tracing. Wow, yeah. So I guess like, I mean, again, like you said, the importance of going back and like, you know, finding index patients, contact tracing, and then really preventing such severe disease. I mean, that is like the presentation. I mean, it's already very tragic to know that a child lost their life, most likely due to that. Um, and then in kind of looking at even like Victor's case here, that is a very severe presentation. 
where they're presenting with such significant CT findings. Um, and we, you know, that's, that's actually disheartening to know that all of that could have been prevented. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And, and Victor did really have the classic presentation of the adenopathies causing tracheal compression and a fairly rapid progression, right? He was only mm -hmm. four months uh, and had had symptoms for only a couple weeks. Uh, and that's a classic presentation of a less than one year old child who really with TB doesn't have the classic symptoms, might show right. up like a viral infection that doesn't go away and doesn't have a lot of findings on physical exam despite potentially very severe disease. Yeah. And same thing for his sister, uh, where, you know, she had a little cough for two years and she didn't right. see scare, so she wasn't identified um, early enough. There was this history where maybe she went to a walking clinic a week prior to the events treated like asthma, there was no imaging that was done, but that's not necessarily uh, atypical for how we right. would manage other children. So we really have to have TB, you know, at the top of our mind all the time to find these cases. Yeah, and I think, so kind of like a couple of like, I guess, key points that I would take back, you know, take away from this case would be how important it is to contact trace, inform others if you're like seeing any any child that might have symptoms that are consistent with that. And then having that high suspicion of TB in the back, especially if you have TB in, in your communities and it's endemic in certain communities and really thinking like a chronic cough in a child that's not improving should probably warrant us to think about tuberculosis. So I think for some of our first, you know, first line defense physicians out there who sometimes don't know anything about these patients, right? Like it's very difficult for them because for instance, like walk-in clinic physicians, right? They don't have a background history of, this, of these patients. They don't have their family history. And so, you know, managing patients, but just keeping that on high alert, especially in a province like in Saskatchewan, where we do see a lot of endemic TB. So those are some of the things that I would take back and, and bring into my practice for sure. Is there any other key points that you think we should address uh, maybe for some of our, our uh, listeners for this case? Not for this case. And I think we can go to other key points a little bit later. Um, Perfect. I almost feel like these key points for TB are so cliche, right? Like, I know <laughs> it could always be TB, but really, but really that's what it is. Yeah, I know. And, and to be honest, I think it's like having, knowing what's common in your, you know, areas of practice, I think is really important. And, and it's always the same, you know, if it looks like it, it probably is TB. And so we should always keep that on our differentials. So um, I think it's sometimes it's just good to like familiarize ourselves and remind ourselves that it's still on the differential. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Do you want to walk us through the second case then? Yes. So this second case uh, is not necessarily a complex case because of her uh, presentation, but it was really the treatment that was challenging uh, for her and for, for everyone around her. So this is four-year-old Claire. Um, and her case not only talks about barriers to accessing care, but also the stigma surrounding, uh, surrounding TB that is very, very strong um, everywhere in the province. So anyways, Claire is four, and she was identified through contact tracing, again, uh, of a smear positive pulmonary TB case. So she was a high-risk household contact. And because she's less than five years, it's urgent. So we tend to see these kids, or we want to see these kids quicker uh, and we do more investigations and have a lower threshold to, um, to see them faster than others. So as for the, the guidelines, we needed a skin test right away as, as soon as she's identified uh, with a MENTU and then a repeated MENTU if that one is negative at eight weeks post exposure. And then all kids in less than five, we do a chest x-ray in addition to symptom inquiry and a physical exam, et cetera. But just that was very complicated because uh, the family struggle with um, unstable housing, they didn't have a phone, uh, and so they were very difficult to find. We, again, called everybody we could, sent letters to the clinic in the community where they lived, uh, we contacted family members, uh, and 
uh, on top of all of that, it was in the middle of COVID. So that was the right. first year of COVID. So all of our um, clinics were canceled and we were only doing telehealth clinics, which really isn't ideal to go look for people in their community. Right. Um, and the TV workers uh, who are really miracle workers uh, mm -hmm. in the community where she uh, lives tried to go to their house multiple times but people would not answer the door would not want to talk to them or everyone was sleeping anyways it was a hard time and it took right. many 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 weeks before we could talk to them okay. then the next barrier was how do you do a chest x-ray you don't have a chest x-ray machine in that community and they need to drive or find some transport Mm -hmm. going in another community an hour and a half away to go do a chest x-ray this family has several children uh you know they, they, they work it's very complicated to do that so right. booked her six times for a chest x-ray and she never went to do the chest x-ray she right. didn't have a skin test but she never came back to have it read so you know we can't piece out our 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 information that we need so eventually we succeed in talking to them and in talking to the family, we decided, would it be easier if we brought you to the big city to see us and we could, you know, do all, everything at the same time, examine you. We would see all the family members at the same time. Yeah. That's fair. And, and, and to me, that sounded very overwhelming and I didn't think they would do that. But somehow that was their preferred way of doing things. Okay. We organized for them to come and they come. And so we're able to do the chest x-ray. We do an IGRA. We examined the child and the sister who was also mm -hmm. was six at that time and was also okay. a con. Um, and so we see them in our little TV room in the hospital, like in the old part of the hospital where there's no window and there's not really an examination <laughs> bed. <laughs> and so Claire is, she's busy, she's climbing on the wall, she's playful, she's curious, she's very, very chatty. Yeah. And sometimes it's like she doesn't have any symptoms. No cough, no fever, no fatigue, no decreased appetite, nothing. She's okay. running around, happy, nothing. Her exam is totally normal. Hmm. Her sister's coughing a little bit, but that's it. And then the chest x-ray uh, comes back and it looks maybe a little bit viral. You know, we've all seen these, these chest x-ray with you know, a bit of patchy, uh, perihilar thickening, not right. super worrisome. In any other child, we would be like, ah, it's fine. Right. Uh, she gets an IGRA. We get the result of the IGRA a few days later, but it's positive. Mm -hmm. And then because of her, she's been so hard to find her, the chest x-ray is not quite normal. Uh, we decided to admit her for gastric washing on that day. Right. Uh, met her and then do gastric washings. And the parents are a little bit overwhelmed. Like that's not what they were Expecting, um, yeah. and that's a lot more investigations than what they thought. But uh, the TB nurse who saw them was like, you know, I'm not sure about them. We better investigate them more. We might not catch them again. So anyway, right. gastric washings and the PCR on the gastric washing comes back positive, hmm. and the resistance pattern comes back indeterminate for oh, great. Further down the line, we found out that the culture was negative and that was the only kind of clue that we had um, uh, to, di uh, to diagnose it. And we also did a chest x-ray in the sister. Mm -hmm. And her sister had a completely normal exam, but she had a left lower lobe consolidation and air bronchogram on her, um, her x-ray and hyalur adenopathy. Mm. But she had a negative IGRA and her gastric washings were negative. So you can see how the clues to diagnose challenging. quite challenging. Anyways, yeah. so we decide that we're going to treat them both as active uh, because we know that they had a really high risk contact. You know, we have a positive IGRA, we have a positive PCR in one kid and abnormal chest X-ray in the other kid. So we decide to treat them. Okay, we give them their first dose in hospital. It goes well, they go back home. And then yeah. a couple pass. And then we start getting calls every day by the TB workers in the community who are giving them their directly observed therapy in the community right. because they're struggling with Claire. So they go to the house every day and then no one opens the door. Mm. Everyone's sleeping. The kids have a reversed sleep cycle. Yes. So they sleep right. all day. 
even when they get into the house, it's impossible to wake up. They spend two hours at her house every day. Uh, and when she does wake up, she she bites the TB workers, she spits on them, uh, she swears at them, uh, mm. and the TB workers are actually becoming afraid of her when she's poor. Right. Yeah. Um, and so when that occurs, we try to mix the TB meds and all sorts of, you know, nice tasting things. We try right. to make sandwiches, we try slushies, we try on a day where people were particularly des desperate, we tried Red Bull. <laughs> 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 and but that didn't work uh she kept on spitting and biting and and everybody was getting worked up and traumatized right through all of it right. yeah, sure. from the tb workers it was just awful yeah then we tried to bring her to the tb uh to the um, to the clinic to give her the medicine there uh mm -hmm. tried to hold her down we tried to put ng tubes that wasn't working out right. hmm. and we tried incentives incentives for her family incentives for her like age-appropriate toys sticker charts uh we tried to give her candy we tried to talk to the family to say like you know how do you have anything that you need in your house that we could help with uh the tb workers were bringing groceries every day to help with food insecurity we wrote letters for housing mm -hmm. and then eventually we had meetings with several community members meetings with elders uh with the holistic program in the community uh mm -hmm. where you live try to kind of have everyone on board to 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 make this child take her treatment and everybody right. was very much on board but the child would just not take her treatment mm -hmm. and we worked at that for quite a few weeks yeah meanwhile she remained well she was clinically fine but um people in her community and her parents and the TB workers were getting pretty worked up because there were several bad outcomes at the same time from tuberculosis in that same community. So people who mm. were in the ICU, there was a death in a young person, not a child, but um, mm -hmm. the people were quite afraid for her. Yeah. So we needed to do something. Right. Uh, so in the end, we held another meeting with the family and the, and the, and um and elders in the community, and we decided uh, to bring the child to Saskatoon and work with the Child Life Program uh, to work on medical play and, and, and trauma associated to healthcare uh, yeah. so that we could eventually give her her treatment. And so she worked with them every day for several weeks. And mm -hmm. after a few weeks, she was able to take her medicine after a few hours. And eventually after a month, she was taking the medicine on her own. So it took a very long time, but right. then she went back to her community and finished her treatment. We had okay. to refill her treatment entirely because yeah, because we lost so much time. Yeah, we lost so much time, and we restarted, and then we couldn't trust yeah. that she like had the right number of doses. Anyways, mm -hmm. uh, but through that and the excellent work that you know Child Life and her parents and all the efforts that were done, uh, we were able to finally complete her treatment. Um, mm -hmm. And so, and and so was her sister so her sister struggled less right. um, uh, but she she was seeing this and it was also difficult for her anyways and so when they both finished their treatment we had a little celebration with cake and we had identified like something that they wanted for the end of their treatment so uh, they both got an ipad um, nice. and it was very lovely and everybody yeah. was uh, so proud of what yeah accomplished, you know and the good yeah. that everybody uh okay. had done through that but it was very difficult and it even raised uh some concerns for the tb program about mm -hmm. trust building in the community right right so, uh we knew that there had been some bad outcome and there was potential danger in, in losing yeah. the family and the and the community's trust and we had to navigate that very carefully yeah. and also not too forcefully right because the tuberculosis yeah. in Canada is is so linked to you know colonialism and racism and medical trauma etc so right. uh, these are very sensitive areas to navigate wow that is very challenging but I mean definitely rewarding so like definitely pat on your guys's back because that is impressive to go through all of those challenges you know I mean there was so many challenges with like diagnosing in this case access to care 
um, you know, just transportation in general, actually basic health needs that weren't being met, that was probably also creating a huge challenge in this case. And, and this is not uncommon for a lot of, you know, provinces or centers that are experiencing TB outbreaks as well. And so I think a lot of our listeners probably relate to that. So in terms of, I mean, one thing I took from this was that you need to have a multidisciplinary team. Like yeah. that is huge. Yeah, it is huge. Yes. We right? don't have a social worker in our program. <laughs> yeah. So that's what I mean, right? It's like, if you need a program to be running this efficiently, like this to me, I mean, obviously I'm looking at it from an outside viewpoint. I know the end outcome. I'm sure it was like, there's many more hurdles in between that we didn't even speak about during the case. But in general, I mean, just looking at, you know, without having multiple people involved in this case, there would be a limited chance to run a program so efficiently. You need to have, you know, just the morale too, first of all, because it's very, it's almost like difficult to continue pushing yourself to try to advocate that we need treatment, you know, and we all talk about, you know, how it's the diagnosis is difficult and, you know, all of us kind of hone in on that, that it's very difficult to diagnose, but I mean, treatment, like, I mean, I personally, if I had to take a medication for like six months or longer, it, I think it's challenging. And now we're asking like children, you know, to do this for a long period of time. So I think, I mean, a couple of things that maybe our programs need to also look into is that as TB increases and pediatric TB is increasing, maybe we need to kind of increase our resources to make it more child-friendly too. Right. So I think you mentioned some good ways of, you know, hiding the medication into different tasteful foods. That's an approach that I think all pediatricians are used to doing, um, especially in our infectious disease world, because not antibiotics also don't taste great. Um, a lot of them. So, yeah. And so, but definitely, I think coming up with like having child life support. Right. So not every center would have that ability. Right. And so I think. A lot of programs should likely reassess, you know, and have to reassess what, what resources they have and like what resources they may need if we continue to see, obviously, this much uh, pediatric TB and complicated pediatric TB where, you know, it's not just the complications around the actual diagnosis and, and using medication that's like resistant, because I know in adult TB, a lot of times we'll face a lot of resistance or even you know, foreign born children that are coming into Canada and they have tuberculosis, we see a lot of the resistance um, as a complication. Um, but in this case, I mean, it was already complicated enough to know that the sister didn't even have some of the, you know, clinical findings, whether she's living in the house and she has the symptoms. And then she has these diagnostic tests that are, that are not indicative of TB, right? So, wow, that's challenging. So, I guess one question I want to pose, and it's, it is about the diagnosis, because I get asked this question multiple times a day. <laughs> and so I think it's nice to address is the, I guess, the difference between, so when do we know like TST versus IGRA and like, what is our reliability? And if somebody is a contact, like how the sister was in this case, but her IGRA was negative but she's a contact. I mean, in this case, you guys started her on treatment and you prevented any long, you know, term complications in her. Is that the approach that you would use in most children then? Yes. The answer to this is complicated. And I That's think <laughs> as like the more I progress with learning about TB and doing TB work is uh, one needs to be comfortable navigating the gray. Yeah. <laughs> There's That's no... Fair black and white answers, especially right. in pediatric TB. Uh, so the official answer is for IGRAS and uh, skin tests. So skin tests meant to TSC is all equivalent, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we have good evidence uh, to say that uh, screening for, kid for kids older than five years old, IGRA is equivalent to TSC. For kids who don't need serial testing, IGRA mm -hmm. is appropriate. The problem with IGRA is that it's often not available in smaller communities, smaller centers. Right. It's a very finicky lab to get. We often don't have access to that other than in hospitals. 
Um, and then uh, TST is always fine to do it every once. <laughs> From two to five years old, uh, there's a little bit of a gray zone where we think that IGRA is probably fine, but we don't have the greatest evidence. And under two, we also think it's probably working. We have a little bit of evidence. I think it is coming, but we don't have hard evidence to, to be able to say for sure, use an IGRA instead of a TST. Okay. In the end, oftentimes in kids where you really want to make sure, sometimes you might do both. Uh, right. And that might be helpful. Uh, but the end of the story is an IGRA or a TST helps you identifying TB infection and not TB disease. And oftentimes, especially in kids, the, the smallest, the, the more often you will see this is that in active disease, they'll have energy and their TST will be negative and their IGRA will be negative. Right. This is uh, reported as being you know, 30 to 40% of cases of active TB, which is huge. And so yeah. a negative screening test doesn't rule out in any way TB infection or TB disease. Right. Now you have to work with your risk factors and exposure and, and, and epi data uh, to see how much, or to decide how much importance you're going to put on a negative test. Right. And that's the gray, <laughs> the gray zone yeah. application comes uh, handy. So for them, these sisters, they had a clear epi link. They were exposed to a four plus mirror positive pulmonary case for extended periods of time. Um, one of them had symptoms and we did have bacteriological uh, confirmation for one of them. So it all made sense despite yeah. the screening tests in the older girl. Yeah. But in That's someone nice. who doesn't have contact, no risk factors, no symptoms, uh, normal imaging, well, you might ask yourself, why did you do the screening test first? But the <laughs> 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 negative, <laughs> negative test doesn't, doesn't uh, you know, might need more. Right. Okay. No, that's fair. Yeah. And I, and I think everybody who sees TB or manages TB or has, you know, been around, like even our pharmacists who have been around, um, anybody who's managing TB kind of knows that there's always this gray zone. And, and if the kind of the clinical picture is there, then it's probably more likely, um, reliable, um, in that case. Yeah. And then you have that contact, right? So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, yeah. that might be me being careful. And I, I think everyone, uh, you know, works differently depending on their, their experience and their comfort level. But yeah. especially if there's an epi link, uh, I verge on the, on treating others, uh, yeah. um, uh, especially treating for latent when I'm not yeah. sure. And I either wait um, and observe if they're well, which we can totally do that, right? TB will right. eventually declare itself. Yeah. Um, or treat. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. So before we move on to the third case, I want to just touch on, you mentioned the stigma around TB. So are there resources or, you know, like as healthcare professionals, like for us, like, are there, I mean, we mentioned that we don't have a social worker on our team, but in general, like, are there some resources that we could help families with the stigma and obviously I mean you know they like we can what's something that we can lessen the burden on them because I know that could be very challenging especially in some of these communities that you're going to and you're working in and have outbreaks I mean it's very difficult for people to not you know find out or know what's going on right um, so is there any kind of guidance that you would give since you have you've had some experience in some of these northern communities um it's it's something that i find very difficult to navigate um mm -hmm. and it often comes to relationship building and, and and trust building uh and forming relationship with the entire community uh knowing the place that you work in and knowing the tb workers and the, the elders and and um finding out uh, if possible, what is it that people are worried about uh, mm -hmm. goes a long way. Um, and the consistency uh, in the people working in those specific community can also be very helpful. Um, right. But, you know, again, that's easier said than done. 
in the new uh, Canadian TB guidelines that were just published in the spring, there is an entire chapter that's dedicated uh, to kind of cross-cultural care and 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 um, working in communities that have been traditionally uh, stigmatized and marginalized, which is a really good resources uh, resource for healthcare provider that I okay. you know, would encourage you to read. Perfect. But in terms of uh, people living that life you know there's lots of people who have memories of being in the sanatorium and being taken away from their family and and right. coming after years and all of that is is very traumatizing and still very yeah. present in people's minds and lives um and so addressing this slowly and 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 gently um i i think is helpful but also mm -hmm. What I, and again, I feel this is almost cliche to say, you know, but again, addressing the reasons why people found themselves in that place, right? It's mm -hmm. because uh, of, uh, you know, societal mistreatment over generation, living in poverty, unstable housing uh, that's not been outdate, uh, updated and, and, and uh, yeah. food insecurity. Uh, and all of that weighs a lot more in, in people's minds. And it's so, so addressing that will also help um, with trust building. And yeah. you know, it's so important to the work that, that we do. Like we couldn't treat TB if we didn't have the resources uh, yeah. to support that somewhat, even though whatever we're doing is insufficient. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Yeah, yeah it's challenging. I mean, it's uh, something that's going to take a lot more years probably um, and a lot of support and um, and I think having the resources that we have now I mean I think we're already definitely better than we were a few years back and I think everything is moving in the right direction so yeah I agree and I actually I I, I work with this wonderful TB nurse that um, uh, is a mentor to me and, yeah. and she said you know I think people in the communities where there are currently outbreaks and are potentially communities are isolated and, and, and traditionally stigmatized by the rest of society, people are doing beautiful things, seeking mm -hmm. care and bringing their children to medical attention and accepting the screening um, right. and, and, and participating in contact tracing. They're, they're working for their community and this is what is most helpful. Uh, right. And showing this and putting light on this uh, I think from my small, small, you know, ignorant perspective might help with decreasing the stigma, you know, uh, and yeah. putting power back into people. Yeah, no, that's a fair point. And really like commending like those that do come forward for screening and yeah. saying, you know, that there were a case or they have symptoms, that type of thing, despite yeah. having the stigma. So I think that's actually a very good point you bring up. Yeah. Yeah. And these these good outcomes of, of, of success stories of patients who finished their treatment uh, are helpful. Uh, we did notice even after that case that people would come to the clinic worried about TB being like, my kids were in contact with X person and X person, should I be worried and asking more right. about it? And this is, this is what we're hoping for, you know? And, and that's yeah. also, uh, I think, such an extraordinary Yeah. Yeah, and I love the idea of like celebrating at the end. That was great. Oh yes, <laughs> I love the parties. <laughs> that's awesome that's great all right so why don't we move on to the third and the final case for today and uh, this has just been like already it's like so informational so I can't even um thank you more like you know enough for being on the podcast today it's great oh thank you so much I mean I could talk about this all night but I don't have time okay so let's do the third case um who is a 12-year-old uh, girl who we will call Lindsay. And Lindsay presented to a walking clinic uh, in the fall. And her presenting concern was that she had worsening back pain since the previous summer, but not much else in terms of other uh, symptomatology. She didn't really have any red flags at that time. She didn't have any fever, weight loss, et cetera. Uh, the pain wasn't waking her up at night. Uh, and she came to this walking clinic in a medium-sized city where TB, I imagine, wasn't necessarily top of mind when she was seen. You know, a teenager that comes with back pain, we see this every day, right? Mm -hmm. But in any case, there was a, a spine x-ray that was done um, at her first presentation. And then that showed, I wish I could show you the, the, <laughs> the, the x-ray. So it showed a small lytic lesion at T8. And the report says, 
uh, MRI is recommended, follow-up recommended. Uh, and then there's a CT that's requested by the physician who saw her mm-hmm. at the walking clinic, who's not like a clinic that knows her or will follow her up or anyways, but they requested right. the CT. Uh, and then not much happens for quite a few months. And eventually her parents are like, oh, right. Like she still has back pain. There was supposed to be a CT. What's happening with that? They phoned the clinic and they discovered that the requisition was lost. Hmm. That's three months post her initial presentation. Oh, jeez. And of course, in interim, her back pain has worsened. She's missed weeks of school. And then she developed progressive leg weakness. She's not able to get up on her own. She falls a lot. And then quite worrisomely over the last week, she noticed that she's been more constipated than usual and she's been having difficulty passing her urine. Anyways, so there's an urgent CT that's organized for that same day. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oh, she also developed fevers, night sweats, and has lost 10 pounds since she was last There you go. (laughs) Uh, So there you go. And then the CT shows that lytic lesion uh, at her T8 that's grown is destructive and there's destruction of the vertebral bodies and posterior elements mm-hmm. and then the report says these findings are very concerning for ewing sarcoma or lymphoma possibly of crmo should be explored infection is less likely mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and i think we're actually involved in this case you probably remember yes, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh so uh, after that CT, that same day, she's sent from that mid, mid-level mid city to, to a tertiary care center that same day, and she's admitted under ortho, and oncology is consulted, and she has a workup that's initiated for sarcoma uh, with a full-body PET CT and MRI of her spine. Uh, both ortho and oncology's reports like very likely malignancy. The MRI report, the PET CT report also say that. And there's mm-hmm. an order that's booked the next day for decompression of her spine. Uh, and then on the PET CT, there's they're described that lytic lesion from the CT, but there's also another lesion at T5 that's suspicious for METS. And she has a small pleural effusion with a small pleural nodule that they say is also suspicious for METS. Her lung parenchyma is normal and the rest nice. of her PET CT is normal. And then they think about consulting Dr. Purewell for rule out infection before, yes. <laughs> before her, uh, her OR. And Dr. Purewell, who's seen crazier things, says, you know, make sure you send samples for TB in addition to all of these other things. Yeah. And in doing a very thorough history, like Steve's ID likes to do, uh, <laughs> I think you found out that she had ties to one of the communities where there was outbreak. Yeah. She actually went back and forth from this community uh, and uh, spent a lot of time there even before her symptoms started. Yes. Uh, she even lived in that community for years uh, before she went to high school. Mm-hmm. Anyways, that's in the background. While she's going to the OR, they decompress her spine. It's a very long surgery. There's two surgeons involved. It was very, very complex. Uh, but they resect the mass. And then they send the, the sample for PATH. And on the same day, we get a preliminary report no malignant cells, but there's granulomatous inflammatory infiltrates and some necrosis in the sample, which is non-caseating, but nonetheless, some necrosis. Mm -hmm. And then we fast-tracked the TB-PCR on that sample, which came back positive. Mm -hmm. And that's when the TB program got involved. uh, And eventually her IGRA came back positive and the sample from her OR, uh, the cultured brew MTB, which was pan-sensitive. Right. So she was treated like disseminated TB of the pleura and bone, was put right. on nine months of TB treatment uh, with the traditional ripe therapy, and she had an excellent outcome. If you look at her yes. uh, CT images post-treatment, it's mm-hmm. fully resolved. There's no sequelae at all, but most importantly, uh, she's walking, uh, right. and she doesn't have any neurological sequelae from um, her bony osteomyelitis. Um, right. Sarcosis. So again, I just <laughs> the lessons from this case are almost cliche and so classic, which, yeah. you know, in tuberculosis, in children, early identification is so, so, so important um, yeah. to avoid dramatic and horrible 
outcome where she could have potentially been paralyzed, right? Yeah, or, exactly. Or have further dissemination. And, you know, we yeah. want to avoid death and horrible disability uh, yeah. in everyone, but but particularly in, in children. But also, yeah. often, when there is a mass in the picture, the malignancy will be top of mind and people will not necessarily think about including TB uh, in their differential unless there is clear causes, um, clear links to, to, to epi, uh, to yeah. epi She did have, but they were a little bit difficult to find. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And I do remember this case being challenging in the sense that, I mean, most of the time, you know, and I always teach my learners this too, is that it's really, really, really difficult when you're called and somebody says, oh, this is a mass. You know, like, because NAS in everybody's mind, you know, tunnel visions you to malignancy. Especially Just, when all of the reports and all of the subspecialists kind of grasp that and say, yes, it fits with the yeah. viewing coma, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. So I think, like, in this case, I mean, like any other case I always tell learners, is like, you have to step back and remember that you go in with a clean slate, you know, take your history find out information and getting collateral information, especially in like teenage patient, teenager patients, I've noticed is like really important because sometimes they can't remember. I mean, life is changing, right? Like things are happening all the time, you know, everything's a blur. And, and so it's, I think, really important to be asking parents and, you know, whoever else is in close contact with the family, that type of thing. So and really not getting tunnel visioned. And, and it's, it, it's so difficult though, because I mean, especially for consultants, because you're told here's the clinical question yes. and can you help us? Like an ID is a little bit different because everybody always says, can you rule out infectious disease? You know, <laughs> I wish there was like a list of 10 diseases <laughs> that I could rule out for everybody, but you know, but in the end of the day, it's, it's our job, right? Like, just like how you're, you're a detective in TV world. I'm like a detective in the infectious disease world. Right. So like, I have to put the pieces together and always remembering that the story has to fit. Right. And if this, there's something off about the story, like the age group or the presentation, then always reconsidering, like, maybe this isn't the diagnosis and maybe I should think you know, maybe there's other things. And that's why we do all these tests, right? So that we can actually, I mean, most of the time it's to rule out certain diseases, yeah. you know, and like some of the times they rule them in, which is great. Um, and, and I mean, knowing that the utility of like, we're very lucky because we have a lab that can do, you know, a PCR based test for us quite quickly on uh, kind of uh, requests, even I, I remember this case being on a weekend. So it was a Friday afternoon and like Saturday morning, we had uh, the PCR result back, right? So I think like we're fortunate that we're in a center that we're able to do that. And some centers may not have the capacity to do that, but just remembering that if you have, you know, quicker diagnosis and, and in, we knew that going into this, we're gonna get a good tissue sample. So tissue is ideal, right? For sampling. So whenever in my world, if a tissue is positive for something, I mean, the yield is there, right? So if we can send it off and, and we always talk about in guidelines, like if it's fluid and or even sputum and there's less than a, you know, a small amount, like less than a mil, we always make sure that culture is sent over PCR molecular based testing as per our guidelines, which is very accurate to do because we, we should be doing that so that we can actually definitively diagnose and then also follow the resistance patterns and sensitivities. Um, but in cases where you know there's going to be an ample amount of tissue and you need a rapid or ample amount of specimen, you need a rapid diagnostic test to kind of help you rule in. I think PCR molecular-based testing um, is definitely very helpful. So it was for this case, at least for me. So Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, yes. And tissue in TB is always the best yield. All the other samples uh, are, you know, notably not very good. Uh, and so yeah. a negative sample doesn't necessarily mean anything uh, yeah. as you know of course um and then for the pcr what is interesting uh is that it's not validated for many types of samples and so often right. again if it's negative uh you know one has to remember that it doesn't totally rule it out but when it's positive then that definitely uh will give you a lot of clues towards your diagnosis 
And anywhere where you can do a gene expert um, a sample, you can use the same machine to do different samples. Uh, and yeah. so I know that some remote communities have gene experts for uh, influenza, et cetera. Uh, and I believe you can still, and this is like, you know, non-validated, <laughs> but in a pinch, yes. you could use this machine to test like a sputum sample, a gastric washing sample for right. Okay, that's good to know. I mean, especially like, you know, in a situation where you don't have much for resources or you can't transport the patient to a bigger center, right? Yes. So, yes. yeah. It's often no. big obstacles. Yeah. Then in terms of malignancies and TB, those are often, like you said, right, there is a map. Mm -hmm. And so people look yeah. at that. You need to rule out malignancies, right? Because this is also what's going to, yeah. to, to, to kill people. Yeah. TB and malignancy go hand in hand. You know, like yeah. you talk about malignancies, TB is often in the differential and vice versa, but it can also happen together. Uh, right. We have seen this, people with, you know, classic presentation of um, TB adenitis, uh, mm -hmm. but then you do a biopsy and you do find out that they have a lymphoma. Um, mm. And so yeah. really being careful about uh, not missing one when the other is present, but also making sure that people don't have both things. Yeah, no, that's actually a really good point, right? And so a lot of these like diseases that are mimickers of one another, right? And we had classically always talk about these, this indolent presentation, that uh, type of thing. So the workup has to be extensive, but yeah, keeping a broad differential, right? That's what we, that's what we practice. So I think that's exactly. yeah. the end of the day, always remembering that there could be multiple things going on. And um, I think if you come up with a broad differential to begin with, uh, it's, it's uh, easier to manage these cases. Wow. So super interesting. So we went through kind of the social concerns with managing TB. We talked a lot about like, you know, access to care and um, complicated cases in terms of, you know, just clinical presentations and contact tracing. And then another case where, you know, diagnosis sometimes is so difficult um, and it's missed at times um, and really keeping that uh, in mind that some presentations can mimic TB and, um, if it is endemic or if you're if any suspicion, really getting a thorough history and really knowing, I think, which communities in your provinces have higher TB cases and, you know, keeping in touch with public health. And I think for some physicians, it's a little bit easier. Like I work daily with public health, so they're always hearing from me. <laughs> and um, so I think it's similar to like a TB program, you guys will be in close touch. So I think like encouraging other physicians, you know, even if you're out in the community practicing somewhere, it's okay to call the medical officer of health or, you know, reach out to your TB program and see if this is a community that maybe somebody is listed as a contact, because that might just guide you to the right direction and prevent any type of complication that we just talked about. So absolutely. I was actually going to bring this up. So in Saskatchewan, mm -hmm. I'm not sure how it works in other provinces, but I I imagine it's similar. Uh, you know, there's a TB physician on call 24-7. Uh, yeah. And as with any other consultants, it's totally okay to phone the TB physician with a question. Like you're not right. sure, would you think about TB in this specific case uh, or not? And if so, what kind of investigation should you do? Uh, and that's why we're here, right? And yeah. we're able to see, oh, is this person part of an ongoing contact trace? Or maybe they were under our radar, we're trying to reach them. And so it's useful for everyone, including the TV program, to receive these, these phone calls. And I would yeah. say with kids, if you're not sure, it's always urgent. If TB pops in the back of your subconscious, yeah. <laughs> call the TB physician. <laughs> yeah, that is great advice. Yes, because sometimes, I mean, especially with pul even pulmonary TB, uh, sometimes difficult because a lot of these patients are on like weeks of antibiotics first, right? There's like this non-improving pneumonia, which then ends up sometimes being, because it doesn't really always have to present cavitary originally, right? And so, so I think it can be really, really challenging, but always keeping in the mind, in the back of the mind, you know, if there is any suspicion, it's better to just call and Absolutely. use your resources. Absolutely. Yeah. Even if you yeah. don't have any confirmation of anything and it's just a question, it's always fine. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you so much, Dr. Brandon Moore. That was like 
honestly, it's just so refreshing to go through some cases because you know all of us are always thinking about you know, different diseases and different conditions, especially living in a province where it is endemic to have TB. A lot of our listeners, you know, they've reached out and they want to talk about it. We know that there's TB outbreak areas here. Um, and so we've gotten a lot of questions regarding it. And so I think this combined with the new guidelines is a really, really, really great resource. Um, I think it's, I think all learners, all physicians, um, you know, especially within Canada where we are seeing an uptick in our cases, uh, we should all be familiar with this. So I want to thank you for coming on the podcast and it was uh, a fantastic episode and uh, we look forward to having you back again for future games. Thank you so much for having me. I was so honored to be here. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you, Dr. Pierwall, and thank you, Dr. Brennan Moore, for joining us. Have a topic suggestion? Email us at thecanadianbreakpoint at gmail.com and be sure to follow us on Twitter at CA Breakpoint. See you again soon at the Canadian Breakpoint.